0: Excited about today. I always am on a Sunday morning. Amen? So, Truett and Chloe are not here in the front row, they normally are, because Truett is in Glen Heights preaching at his grandfather's church, Bear Creek Baptist Church, this morning. So, I'm excited for them. And uh, his grandfather, of course, is Heather's dad, who is a man who mentored me in ministry. So, it's exciting to know that he gets to be there this morning with them. And I think this is maybe four years in a row that Truett has done that. And so, um, I told him the next time he preaches, it'll be here. So I'm looking forward to that day for him. So uh, when Heather and I got married, we moved into a house that was just perfect for us. Uh, you know, God, when you pray and believe and trust him and ask him, he'll give you what you need and really what you desire, right? And so we got this little bitty 800-square-foot house out in Othian that was down this long dirt road, belonged to some, uh, there was was some other stuff on the property. Basically, we were the only ones living there on massive amount of acreage, isolated, little bitty 800 square foot house. It was just one bedroom. It had two closets, had one little stacked washer dryers that you could wash one pair of jeans and one shirt in. Basically, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, No dishwasher, no microwave, but it was perfect for us. You know, those first uh, years or year until Brianna came along. And so it wasn't long. God blessed us with Brianna and we still made it work. You know, it was, a, it was a kind of a, a bigger bedroom or a long bedroom, I should say, it wasn't big, it was long. And so I turned the dresser sideways We made a little space for her. And so we made a one bedroom into, that was small into two really small rooms basically. And then Holly came along a couple of years later. And so whew, we're starting to feel it in this little 800 square foot house. Our capacity was small, right? And we wanted to have some more activity, but we knew in order to have some more activity, to have more children, to have families over, to have friends over, we were going to have to have some more capacity. Hello? Because your activity ends up getting limited by your capacity. We wanted to grow, but our capacity was limited. So we prayed and God gave us a new place to go to. We had to get to the next level. It was going to cost us something It was going to be a bit of a sacrifice, but we got into a place that had some more capacity so we could expand our activity, and we did and had more kids. Hello? And God blessed along the way. God is looking to continually expand the capacity of our hearts. What you have right now and what you know about God, know about his will for your life, know about his blessings for you, is not the end of the road. There is so much more that he has for you. But for you to receive that, as Caleb said, you're going to have to expand your capacity. You're going to have to be willing to do some things and believe some things differently than you have believed up to this point. You're going to have to believe some things about who God is, what his purpose is, how good the blessings are in him, what the Holy Spirit's role for your life is, the power of God's word, all that stuff. He has so much more for us. And hence, that's our series, More. God is looking to expand our capacity. So today, I'm calling our message, Jesus came to expand your capacity. This is his purpose. He came for you to have your life redeemed, transformed, born again, start all over again, but with new life, walk out of the grave of death and guilt and shame and fear and all that stuff, and walk into the glorious power of who Jesus is in your life. And his desire is to continually expand that capacity so that you take in more and more of his truth. So let's jump right in today. Turn to Luke. The Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter seven because we're going to see a story today that illustrates this point in the lives of especially two people. One is going to have her capacity expanded, she is going to forever be changed because she allowed Jesus to change her. The second person, however, is a guy, is a man. This doesn't mean that only God expands the heart of women and not of men. It just happens in this story, this is what it looks like. A woman who responds, a man who does not. Our story begins in verse 36. I'm going to read the story, make just a few comments. Then we're going to jump into using the marker board here. You can follow along, take some notes, draw some stuff on your page. Uh, I'll, we'll put the marker board back up at the end if you want to just come and take a picture and not do any of that stuff. So here we are in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees, which is uh, one of the Jewish men who was a leader in the Jewish belief system who was learned and trained and followed God's ways, but by their traditions had added some laws to God's word and they, this one at least, rejected Jesus as the Messiah as the one who was fulfillment of all the Old Testament. They refused to believe that he was the one. So this man, this Pharisee, asked Jesus to eat with him. He invited him to his house. As the story unfolds, we're going to see that maybe his motives weren't all that clear. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Jesus walked right up into this situation, knowing it was a nest. Not a good nest, Right? And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, this woman had heard Jesus was there. This woman went and realized Jesus was there. She was a known sinner in the town, had been up to this point recently. And when she finds out Jesus is in this house, she goes there. And it says that she brought an alabaster flax of fragrant oil. She brought something of worth. She brought something of great treasure and of great value. She wanted to go see Jesus and she had something significant to bring with her. Verse 38 and She stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now this was not on the Pharisees' agenda for the evening. His evening, his entertainment, his plans for the evening are hijacked all of a sudden, taken over by this woman who says... I don't know what you brought Jesus here for, but I've come here to worship him. When Jesus is in the room, I'm gonna bring my heart and I'm gonna pour it all out at his feet. Now, I wanna make something clear at this point and we're gonna come back and I'll show you why this is true. This was not this woman's first encounter with Jesus. She didn't just say, oh, whoops. Who is that? I wonder who that could be. Oh, here's a strange man in a house. I think I'll go in and weep behind him. I think I'll bow down and cry and let my tears wash his feet. This was not her first opportunity to hear and be with Jesus. I'll show you more about that in just a second. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, "So, so this is the guy, talk, kind of talking under his breath, right? So this man, if he were a prophet, who would know how? Who would, would know who and what manner of woman this is, who is touching him? For she." is a sinner. This man's saying all this inside. It's all going on inside his head, his heart. But Jesus knows what's going on in our head and heart. It says, and Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. This dude is fake as fake can be. Teacher, oh, I respect you. Please say to me. Jesus says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Two people owed one man two different amounts. And when neither of them could repay, the man who had given them the money forgave both debts. And Jesus said, "Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more?" Simon answered and says, "I suppose the one whom he forgave more I'm trying to sound all intelligent here and spiritual. And he said to him, "You have rightly judged." Then he, Jesus, turned to the woman and said to Simon, I want you to just get this picture. She is at the feet of Jesus." She is weeping. It's an audible sound in the room. It's an awkward situation because she's crying and she's wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. And the fragrance of this oil is filling the room. And all of it is happening while Jesus is talking to Simon. And he looks. It says here, uh, he turned to the woman and he spoke to Simon. In other words, I've got something to say to you, Simon, but I want you to hear it while I look at her. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves Little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? You see, it was a nest, it was a setup, it was a trap. They brought Jesus in with no interest in learning what he had to say, except for what they could use to try to trap him. Verse 50, it says, Then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now I want to give you the reason why I think this was not the first occasion for this woman to meet this man. You know, there's part of a beauty that happens in the Greek language that you and I don't know of as, or with our English language, and this is where it would be, or has been important that we were in school. Remember those moments where you always said, "Why do we have to learn all this noun, verb, adjective stuff?" Here's your moment, right now, okay? A verb is a word that tells you of some activity, right? It says, I am running, walking, sitting, okay? Those are action words. The verbs in the Greek were written in such a way at that time that when we interpret them today, they tell us when the activity happened, whether it was in the past and it happened on a singular event or whether it happened in the present or it's going to happen in the future, or if it happened in the past and it has ongoing continuous results from that action. Interesting. God chose for the scripture to be written at a time when those Greek words were in play so that when we read them today, we would know with clarity what God's word says. We don't have to guess, we don't have to assume. For example, in this verse, where Jesus said, therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, there's your action, forgiven. Now the question is, what does that mean, when? Was it something that was about to happen? Was this future, was it past, is it present? The verb usage here tells us that it was in the past. It's called the perfect tense if you're a Greek verb student. It happened in the past and it has ongoing continuous results to it. So in other words, there was a time in the past where Jesus spoke or met this woman and she heard what he had to say and she received what Jesus said, and her sins were forgiven in that moment, in the past. And there is ongoing, continuous results from it. Her sins are forgiven. They have been forgiven already. For she loved is not a reference to all the sin that she had committed. Hello? It's not that she was uh, This is not a reference to the fact that she was immoral with a bunch of men. It wouldn't have used the word loved. Hello? It's a reference to the fact of what she just did. She is loving much. She is pouring out her gratefulness for what Jesus has done because she was forgiven already. When you know what Jesus has done for you, it will produce an activity that comes from you. This woman, because she knew how much she had been forgiven, she had been set free and she came to worship. She didn't come to worship to be forgiven. Hello? It's what Caleb was talking about earlier. She didn't come to do some great things so that Jesus would say, okay, well, you know, since you were so good this morning, I'm gonna give you some forgiveness. No, she was completely forgiven because she believed and here she was demonstrating her faith in that she had been forgiven. Let me walk this through for just a little bit. I wanna contrast our two people here. We're gonna talk about her as the one who is free. All right? And then we're going to talk about our friend Simon as one who appeases. Now, appeases, this is a word that means to try to keep someone happy so that they won't be angry with you you're trying to appease someone. You're trying to be kind to them. You're trying to be nice to them. You're trying to give them some things so they won't turn against you, so they won't turn away from you. And Jesus in this story says, for those who are free, they will love much. But those who live to appease, they will love little. Let's break this down because there's so much that impacts us in this whole story here today. Even within the realm of churches, there are some different ways that people carry this out as Caleb said earlier. And it seems to follow patterns in certain denominations. And I'm gonna go ahead and name some names this morning. And I'll just put ours in there as well. We tend to be like Baptists here at Vertical Church. We come from a Baptist heritage. Our doctrinal beliefs are Baptist, but we don't look a whole lot like Baptists on a Sunday morning. Hello, right? And I'm not here. We're not here to make people Baptist. We're here to make followers of Jesus Christ. But the way we believe falls in line with Baptist doctrine more than any other denominational doctrine, right? So what's tempting in a lot of Baptist churches, if you've been around them, is to let activities like being baptized, attending, giving, or serving be a way that we think, if we're not careful, a way of appeasing God. I'm going to do these things so that he won't be mad at me. A lot of people even come to church on a Sunday morning with that in mind. Well, I better get to church because I don't want God to be mad at me this week. Really? Did you miss the whole thing about Jesus died for you? Did you miss the whole thing about that? Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He already loved you. as for by grace you're saved by faith, not by works of righteousness. You aren't saved by the fact that you came to church, were baptized, prayed a prayer, gave some money. Those, none of those things saved you. You're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Hello? You have to be clear about that. It's important. We're not here to try to build up a list of works that make us look better to God. Right? Let's just walk down some denominational lines here. If you have come from an assemblies or Pentecostal background, I've been in some of those. I know what can tend to happen in some of those. There can be this thought that, well, I need to worship enough to try to get enough experience built up to try to work myself up enough to try to get God's favor and maybe he'll bless me and forgive me and I'll have more favor in my life. Hello? It's okay to amen, come on now. That happens sometimes in Pentecostal assemblies, churches and they have a, they have a doctrine that goes along with it that to me is very, very destructive. It's one that says, you can never really know for sure if you're saved. They don't like the fact that we say, once saved, always saved. Always saved. They don't like that. They tend to have belief, not all, but many assemblies and Pentecostal churches believe that your standing with God is based only on your current obedience to God. And if you're not walking in perfect obedience, if you're not working, uh, walking in extravagant worship, then you have lost your salvation and you better get down front and get it all again. Let's just keep on walking down some of these. Catholics. Catholic churches tend to put an emphasis on the prayers that are prayed and that those are what get you right standing to God. And so you have to pray in a certain way to a certain person through a person on earth often and repent your sins to that person and to the degree that you do those things, you get favor and forgiveness from God. When Jesus died and rose again, he opened the way for you and I to come boldly to the throne of grace, straight to him. I don't come through someone else. And my standing with him is secure It's not based on the latest prayer I've prayed out of a book that told me how to pray it. Hello? Or even holding a certain set of beads. Let's keep going. Let's talk about Methodists for just a little bit. Not all Methodists are bad. Not all assemblies are bad. I'm not not here to paint bad across denominational lines. I just want to point out some areas that you have to be aware of. A lot of times in some Methodist churches, The focus is on being loving and nice. And to the degree that that you are loving and nice to all people, you gain a greater favor and forgiveness with God. But the minute you take a stand on any kind of doctrinal issue and cause someone else to be offended, you run the risk of losing your standing and favor with God. Not all, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that about any of the... One's near us even. That's not my point today. I do want to point out the fact that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are taught that the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and you have received full forgiveness of your sins at that moment not partial, not some for now, some for later, but the full forgiveness of your past, present, and future sins. You and I are not living to appease God in some way that we keep a checklist of how much we're doing along the way because, boy, at any moment, he might just smack you down with some arrow of judgment because of some horrible thing that you have done and you'd lose your salvation. Do you hear me? There's no security in that. There's no peace in that. There's no gospel in that. There's no Jesus in that. It's true. So, as we look at um, our characters here today, I want us to look at this woman who loved much. And I want to show you what it looks like when a person loves much. I'm going to use some words on this side that all start with the letter E. This woman was eager to come... And worship Jesus. It says in the story that she stood at his feet, behind him weeping. It's the first thing about a person who loves much. I've got some slides we can follow along here. She was eager. She didn't have to be told, hey, uh, Jesus is going to be starting Sunday morning, 1030. You better get there or else. Get up. Get up. Come on. Get over there. You know they're having a service down there for Jesus. Get up. She didn't have to be told that. She didn't have to be fussed at. She didn't have to be bribed or conjoled, any of that stuff. She heard Jesus was in the house and she went to that house. She was eager. That's what happens when your heart truly is set free. You don't have to go. Because you think he could be angry or he might not be angry. You go because he's in the house and he's already set you free and you wanna go show him some love. Amen? You wanna worship him. She was also emotional. The Bible says that she began to wash his feet with her tears. It's a funny thing that we do in church. We come across times where we say, well, I mean, I, I like church and all, but, you know, I got to guard myself. I don't get too emotional. <sighs> you know, if I get too emotional in that place, I mean, oh, I mean, what would people think? Really? That's what's more important to you, what people think rather than what Jesus has done for you. When your heart is set free, you're not afraid of your emotions because he comes in, expands your spirit, and he starts engaging your mind, your emotions, and your will. And you'll cry at the drop of a hat. It won't matter who's standing around you. Hello? You won't be afraid to lift your hand, to shout, to pray, to whatever it is, because that's what happens for people who love much. It shows up in their life. They're eager to do it. They even get emotional about it. That's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of the power of God working in your life. You get emotional talking about Jesus changing your life. This woman could not stop being emotional about the fact that she had been a sinner, rejected in the town, rejected from knowing who God was until she heard the words of Jesus and she walked right in and said, I've got to pour out my love before this man who changed me. And she was emotional about it. She is weeping. It's not just a little tear coming down her cheek. She's like, <laughs> she is full-on emotional. She can't even stand up. She starts in a standing position, and she's down pretty soon on her feet. And she's down on her knees and she's down with her face to the ground because you can't wash someone's feet with your hair unless your face is in the dirt next to where his feet are. Amen? She's moved. And that's what happens to so those who love much, who know what they've been forgiven, it even makes them emotional. And they're not afraid of that. It also makes them It says here in the story that she wiped them his feet with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet. She wasn't ashamed. She wasn't afraid to be expressive. This was the one who had changed her life. This is the one who had finally showed her what love was like. This is the one who had set her free from all the condemnation and guilt that she carried. This is the one who set her free from thinking she had to live a life of immorality to try to find some kind of delight and pleasure in her life. This was the one who had changed her completely, and she was not afraid to express that love in front of whoever, whenever. In fact, if you remember, whose house is she in? Simon the Pharisee. Who is sitting with him? Other Pharisees. Who most likely would have been the ones to give her the greatest condemnation in town? Those Pharisees. And she walks right up into that house and she's not afraid. As Heather's uncle says in Tennessee, I ain't scared. She was not scared to walk up into that place and love and express it and show it. She didn't say, well, you know, I'm looking for a nice dignified way to express my love to the Lord Jesus Christ. No, she came in and threw herself down on the ground, interrupted this man's dinner party, and just began to worship. It didn't matter what it sounded like. It didn't matter what the aroma produced in the room. It didn't matter that she interrupted the whole thing. She was there because that's what love does that has been changed in a heart. It's expressive. It shows up. Amen? It's also extravagant. This woman brings an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. It's costly. And she's going to pour it out on the feet of Jesus. She doesn't keep it for herself, she didn't sell it to try to make money for herself. She didn't use it for a nice gift for a few of her friends to impress them. She took what was of greatest value to her and said, I've got to give this to the one who changed my life. And she was extravagant with it. She poured it all out. She didn't say, there, that should do it. She poured the whole thing out on his feet. She's extravagant with her worship. She doesn't care what people in the room think. She doesn't care that the aroma's gonna fill the air. This is what happens when you love much, when you know you've been forgiven much. You stop being so self-focused. You stop being so self-conscious. You stop being afraid of what other people think, and you love much when you're free. Amen? Amen? But Simon the Pharisee, is not so much this way. He is a man who says he believes, but he believes that he has to keep the law in order to appease a potentially angry God. And if he doesn't do enough, this God could strike him down at any moment. And when you live appeasing You will live with very little love. Watch what happens in this story here. Because um, Jesus says about him, He said, You know, this woman here, she loved me like this. But Simon, here's what you've done you gave me no water for my feet. When you live trying to appease, you'll love little and you'll end up silent. It was customary in these days to pour out some water for the feet of your guests. They didn't have fancy shoes like you and I. They had sandals, and their feet got dry, and they got dusty. And it was customary and complimentary to have some water to wash your guest's feet when they came to your house. But this man, he's not interested He's totally silent when it comes to what should have been even customary. He sees Jesus walk in his house and just like, what's up? He didn't do anything for him. He didn't have a heart for him. He's just silent. He doesn't express anything. He doesn't say anything. And he gave him no water for Jesus' feet. Look, when you live appeasing, you end up so focused on yourself that you end up doing very little, if anything, for anybody else. Because you're so focused on, uh, are they going to be mad at me? Am I doing the right thing? I wonder if this is not the right thing. Boy, should I be doing this? Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Oh, what's he going to think about me? If that's you, you'll end up doing nothing you'll end up being silent where you should have been eagerly worshiping the one who was in the room. Simon also, it says that Jesus said to him, you gave me no kiss. When you have little love, you'll end up stubborn. It's customary. If a guy comes to your house in Eastern culture, you greet him and you greet him with a kiss. Not on the lips, but on the cheek, on both sides. It was a customary way of welcoming them into your home, of speaking blessing to them and acknowledging who they were as friend. But this man's not interested in that. He's all wrapped up in himself, he's all wrapped up in trying to appease God. He's all wanting to make sure he's doing the right thing and make sure Jesus is doing the right thing. And he's so caught up in all that, he's so stubborn in this moment, he doesn't even recognize He needs to get up and express some kind of love and admiration to Jesus who has just walked in his house. The Bible also says that Jesus said to him, you did not anoint my head with oil. You didn't even do that. You didn't even do that customary feature that people did when you came into the house to give them a little oil for their head, a little bit of ointment, a little bit of refreshing, a little bit of scent and aroma to cover the stench of the day and a little bit of blessing that says, if you come into my house, there's a blessing for you. I bless you. That didn't happen here. Because when you're trying to appease instead of be free, you'll end up so totally self-conscious that you won't demonstrate any love. You're wondering about, well, what would it look like if I got up and anointed him with oil? What are these other men gonna think? If I do that, what is that gonna look like? I might get emotional if I do that. I might even say something I wasn't expected to say. People might think certain things about me if I do that. So I have to be self-conscious all the time. And so he comes, Jesus walks into his house and this man is so focused on himself he can't demonstrate any kind of love to the very one who came to redeem him and set him free. So wrapped up in himself. What are you going to do for me? I'm here to actually catch you, really. So I'm going to use you to build me up. So I'm going to look and see what you've got for me because he's all about me. That's what appeasing does. It's such a trap. That's why Jesus said I've come to set the captives free because when you live with your sin still on you, when you live trying to prove you have worth, when you live trying to show everybody else that you really can make it, that you really do have worth, that you really are something, when you live trying to prove to everybody else how great you are, it is all about you and nothing about anybody else. This man is self conscious. And finally, it tells us in this story that Simon and those who were at the table, they all started talking to themselves saying, who is this who even forgives sins? Here's what being a peaser will do. It'll make you sharp with your words. And I don't mean careful. I mean cutting. When you lived a it does something to your heart. It makes you start from a place of anger. It makes you start from a place of jealousy. Why do I have to do this and so nobody else has to do this? Who does he think he is? Well, I'm not going to do that. And all of a sudden, you start talking under your breath about everybody else. Who does he think he is? He, won't forgive. he can't forgive, Sandra. All that starts happening because your mind and your heart all become focused on you. And all of a sudden, you're comparing yourself to other people. You're judging other people. And your heart is shrinking Worse than the Grinches, hello, in this moment. Two different ways. Those who are freed by the life and love of Jesus express themselves this way. Those who are still trying to appease God by their attendance in church, by their giving, by their good works, by their whatever it is. Though they might be right in the middle of an environment of faith, this is what they end up doing. So, let me just make some more application here. Let's just let's just walk up into our home for just a moment. Everybody okay with all this? Yeah? Let's just walk up into some real intimate places in our heart. Valentine's Day is coming up. Here we go. Let's talk about marriage for just a little bit. I really hope you're taking notes. Because there's some teaching that has gone on in Christian circles for some decades now that needs to be corrected. And I'm out to do that this morning by talking about truth. Amen? Because there is a perspective that some have taken about the marriage relationship that has some half-truth to it, but has some half-lie to it as well. And here is where it starts. Wives submit to your own husbands. This is where it starts. That verse is in scripture and that verse is true. But that verse finishes by saying as to the Lord. Wives You have a relationship that you are to have to your husband, but it is to be based on the same way that the church loves Jesus. And do you and I gather to love Jesus by trying to appease him? Hello? Come on now, do we? We're not gathered here this morning to sing and preach and pray, hoping by the end of it, we might be forgiven of our sins because we did enough, right? There is a teaching that goes on in Christian circles that says, wives, it's your responsibility to keep your husband happy at all times, to help him pursue everything he wants, fulfill all of his dreams, chase his career, and provide for him sexually. That's your responsibility. And if you don't, and he ends up in some other kind of sin, it's your fault. Have you heard that? It's out there. I'll just go ahead and name some books that it's out there in. If you've ever ever read Every Man's Battle, get rid of that book. If you've ever read Love and Respect, if you've ever read His Needs, Her Needs, they present this model that says a husband is primary and a wife is secondary. And she is to make sure he gets to do all that he wants to do. And if he were to fail, it's on her maybe you've seen it where the council and the teaching says, ladies, if your husband's got wandering eyes, it's because you're not doing your job at home. Look, if your husband has wandering eyes, he needs to repent of that and come to Christ. Ladies, that is not your fault. That's not for you to bear. You cannot bear his sins. So well, my husband just stays frustrated all the time, and he just, he just doesn't have any real direction for his life. I just need to support him in whatever he says. I just need to do whatever he wants to do so that he can be happy because I wouldn't want him to resent me at some other point in, in his life because I didn't let him do everything he wanted to. Stop that. The day you were married, two became one. One. Not one served the other one, but one together. And you, the day you were married, received a higher calling than what you had before you were single. Now you live to be a picture to everyone around you of what it looks like for Jesus to love the church and the church to love Jesus. And you make decisions as one now, not two, one subservient to the other. You are now one in the Lord. Remember, ladies, your goal is to love your husband in the same way the church loves Jesus. Now, men, please do not be the guy who's making your wife be subservient to you. Don't put it on her that you can't control your thoughts, that you can't control your urges, that you're not satisfied in life That is what you're supposed to get from the Lord himself, and you're to lead out of that place of abundance in your life and demonstrate sacrificial love for your wife, not demand sacrificial love from your wife. Amen? These are real definitions of men and women, husbands and wives, and I'm sorry if you've heard differently. I've had to repent of all this myself because I've taught the other way. I've done that. This past year, Heather and I have had some conversations and discussions about all this stuff and God is birthing something brand new for us because we have believed wrongly and have walked in all the results that come with that. But God is doing something brand new today in us because this is what real love looks like. In your home, this is what it should look like. I'm eager to love my spouse. I'm emotional about my spouse. I'm expressive to my spouse. I am extravagant to my spouse. And when you realize how much you've been given in Christ, this will flow from you to your spouse, husband, or wife. But if you are living in a place where you somehow think it's your role to try to appease them, that somehow I've got to keep them happy because if I don't, they could get mad at me. They could yell at me. They could have an affair. They could leave me. They could do damaging things to me. If that's what's happening in your home, if that's what you're believing, if you're all the time thinking about, I gotta make sure I do it right. Gotta make sure I do it right. I've gotta make sure I'm pleasing him. I've gotta make sure he's happy. I promise you, this is what it looks like in your heart. You're silent and it's hard for you to love. You're stubborn, and you don't want to let there be any love come from you. You're self-conscious all the time, focused on yourself, not on them, and you're sharp with your words, and it's all affecting your relationship. And it's not because of your personality type. It's not because of your spiritual gifting. It's not because of your birth order. It's not because of your circumstances. It's because of how you have seen Jesus in your life. God working in your heart? Some lights coming on? I get it. It's tough. But it's freedom. It's freedom. And this is what Jesus came for. This is not freedom. Whether you're talking about marriage or whether you're talking about worship. But sadly... In many churches today, when it comes to even worship, there's a whole lot more of this than there is of this. There's a whole lot more of, you know, well, I just uh, I just like to watch what's going on. I just like to observe. Take it all in. Really? Okay. So the God of who created all things and redeemed your soul rescued you from hell put you on a path of new life gave you purpose you just want to sit back and watch you got nothing to say about that well you know if i if i open my mouth i mean there's no telling what could happen i mean i just i might get all emotional or something you know oh wouldn't that just be terrible Ooh in a worship experience for people to get emotional. Oh my goodness. You mean it would be a terrible thing if somehow what Jesus has done on the inside started to get on the outside? That would be a terrible thing? That would be a terrible thing if the person next to you said, oh my goodness, they must have been really changed by the Lord. That's a terrible thing? No, when you're set free by the one who loved you, you'll come into worship and you'll be eager You won't be afraid of being emotional. You'll be expressive and you'll be extravagant. You'll be like this woman coming in to find Jesus in the room saying, I don't care who else is in here. I don't care what this is going to look like, what this is going to sound like what this is even gonna smell like, but I'm about to pour out some ointment on his feet. I'm about to wash his feet with my tears and my hair. I'm about to do what none of them would do in the room, but I'm gonna do it because this is the man who changed my life. This is what it looks like when you have been forgiven much, you'll love much. But if you're struggling in marriage, or even in worship, I would just have to say to you, what are you doing? Why are you still feeling like you've got to appease God? You've been set free. Stop trying to look so cool. You've been accepted by the King of Kings in the Trinity of Heaven. Stop trying to look so respectable. He seated you in heavenly places. There ain't no better place of respect than that. Stop trying to be what the person next to you you think wants you to be. The King of Kings is at your right hand. How could you withhold? same is true when it comes even to faith in general. Well, God, I just, I just don't know if I can, you know, believe everything that you've said and go everywhere that you've called me to. And I feel like I just have so much further to go. Look, I get it if you're talking about maturity. But if you are saying to me, you think you got to clean up your acts some more before you can come to God, you're misunderstanding Grace. I have people say to me sometimes, well, you know, I really want to follow the Lord and I want to be baptized. But you know what? I gotta I gotta really straighten up some things first. I get it. You need to repent of some sin and then come to faith and fullness. Do that. But do that. Don't keep putting it off. Don't treat, don't keep trying to reach some place of perfection before you come to Jesus. He came to make you perfect. He didn't look for you to be perfect before you came. Amen? So you come and you come fully, you come extravagantly, you come eagerly and throw yourself at the feet of Jesus and worship him for what he's done for you, not for what you can do for him. Because this is how you find freedom in your life. This is how you find that place of absolute freedom release and the ability to expressively love, the ability to show worship, the ability to be Freed by the one who redeemed you. The ability to love without fear of what others think, the ability to give your worship, the ability to live out your faith in front of others without fear of what they might say or what they might do. You let the sufferings of Christ be where your heart is based. He wore a crown of thorns so that you wouldn't have to so that you could put on a crown of glory and there receive it with great humility and have your heart set free. This is the kind of life that you and I have been invited to in Jesus Christ. I want to read two of the verses in this story and we'll close. I want to read them to you from the Good News Bible. Most of the time, I use the New King James James Version here. But the Good News Bible in this setting, I believe, gives us a clear picture of when this one was forgiven and what it produced in her. Here it is. Jesus said, I tell you then, the great love she has shown proves that her many sins have been forgiven. She had moved from trying to appease to believing she was free. She wasn't there to try to pour out enough, cry enough, do enough, appease enough. She came because Jesus had already done that for her. And then the next part of the verse says this, but whoever has been forgiven little shows only a little love. So I have to ask all of us today How much have you been forgiven? Maybe for some of the things in your life, you can accept forgiveness. But there's some others, you're still trying to make your own way. You're still trying to prove you can do this. You're still trying to work it off. You still think that God might, on some offhanded chance, still be angry with you, still reject you, still be ready with a thunderbolt of judgment to just cast you down. As long as that belief remains in your heart, you will only love little. It'll show up in your life. It'll show up in your marriage. It'll show up in your worship because you think you've got so much more that you have to pay off today it's time to be free it's time to say Lord I believe your word that says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus would you bow your heads with me this is where we make this intensely personal this is the moment where you have a conversation with the Lord himself This is the moment where you say, Lord, forgive me for trying to go it on my own, for trying to pay off my sin, for trying to earn my way, for trying to appease you thinking you're somehow still against me. But today I receive the truth that you have loved me, you have loved me fully, you have forgiven me, and there is now, therefore, no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. And because of that, I want to love you much. I'm tired of having little love come from me. I want to have much love come from me. I want to love you much. I want to love my spouse much. I want to love my children much. I want to love those around me much. And today, Father, I'm here. Because you have loved me much. And I receive every drop of forgiveness for my past, for my present, for my future, and even for who I am. And I thank you that you make me new in Jesus, that I've been redeemed, that I've been set free, and that you are worthy of all my worship. I'll no longer love little, I will love you much. I'll no longer love my spouse little, I'll love them much. I'll no longer judge everyone else, but I will love much because that's what you've set my heart free to do. Father, this morning, I thank you for truth and grace. I thank you that you've come to set us free. You've not called us to a heavy, burdensome, guilty, condemned life. You've come to set us free that we might love, that we might rest in who we are in you, that we might glory in you and know more of your glory. Father, our hearts are open to you today to worship, to love much, for you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd ask you to stand because we're gonna sing. We're gonna love much to the one who's given much. And I'd encourage you, love him eagerly, emotionally, expressively, extravagantly as we sing. If you need to come forward to spend some time at the altar, you're welcome to do that. We've actually rearranged our rows here to make more room up front. So you feel free to come. If you need to go stand by somebody to say something, to worship with them, do that. Let's worship the one who's loved us much, amen?